great to see you this morning. Hope your summer is going well. I can't believe how fast it's going. You know, we're almost halfway through July, and it's flying by. I hope you're enjoying it. Hope you'll be back next week for that new series Kevin mentioned. It's going to be a good one, so I hope you'll be a part of that. Today, we're finishing out James. And if you remember, James is a half-brother of Jesus, younger half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to people who have gone through some tough times. So a lot of them, have, they've, they've spread out, they've dispersed because they've been under persecution. And he's encouraging them on how to live out their faith, even what, with what they're going through. And that's why we call this series, Faith Walks, because real faith should move. Real faith is, is, is not stagnant, it's alive. And as James gets ready to close out his letter, he talks about several issues. He talks about swearing, about sickness, about sin, and about prayer. And, and basically, there's a couple of implications I think we can take from what he says here. First of all, that sin has a far greater negative effect than what we're inclined to believe. Far greater, it's, and it's always been the case. We can go all the way back to Adam and Eve. If you remember, their response to their sin when they did the one thing they were told not to do. The one thing, but just think about how serious that sin was. It dumped every single human being that's ever lived, except for Jesus, into spiritual death. And we were born, all of us, spiritually dead without hope, on our own, all of us, enslaved to sin. I mean, think of all the heartache that that has caused, the guilt, the suffering, all of us infected by it. It's ter- it was terrible, right? Just awful. So what did they do when they sinned? When they did this incredible, awful sin, what did they do? Well, they, they did what we all try to do with our sin. They tried to cover it up, to hide it. I mean, you remember doing that as a kid, right? When you've done something wrong, you didn't want your parents to find out. Tried to, we, we all did that, right? Sort of, be, okay. Not sure if it was Adam's idea or Eve's idea that came up with this idea first. But their idea was they realized, uh-oh, we're, we're, we don't have any clothes on. And so their idea was to go get some fig leaves and sew them together. Fig leaves, you know what what a fig leaf looks like? I didn't know what, I looked it up uh, online, it looked like sort of a mixture between a maple leaf and and an oak leaf. And and and, and so they went and got this leaf, a little bit like this. This was their answer. They've just plunged all of mankind into sin, eternal spiritual death, and this was their answer. Get, get some more of these and let's sew them together. And, and we're good. We, we've covered it, we're taken care of. That was their, who's thinking that's, that's gonna be even effective just practically speaking, you know? And they, and they didn't stop. I, I'm, I'm, they, they, they're looking for some other option because God came looking for them, right? And he asked them, where are you? And they'd gone and hid themselves. And Adam, he answers from behind his tree. It sort of reminds me of playing hide and seek with, a, with young kids. 
You know, I, I do that with our, our grandkids some and the, the, the little ones who haven't got the idea of it yet, you know? And so you yell out, ready or not, here I come. And, and they immediately go, I'm over here. <laughs> they don't get the idea. I don't think Adam got the idea. Because God says, where are you? And immediately Adam answers. And he says, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So let's get this straight. In order to cover up his sin, Adam sewed fig leaves together and then went and tried to hide from an omniscient God. I mean, that that idea is probably worse than the fig leaves. But typical. Typical. And what they do next? Well, he tried to shift the blame, right? He tried to blame it on Eve. He tried to blame it on God. See, Adam doesn't want to be held responsible. That's Adam underestimating how serious his sin was. And that's us. We do the same thing. We've been doing the same thing ever since. We excuse sin, we hide it, we shift the blame. We underestimate the damage that our sin does. Well, we can see sin in others. We see it in our culture. We think this world's gone crazy right about now, right? And it, and it has. We recognize that our culture downplays We see it in our culture, but it's easy to underestimate our own sin. It should be totally inconsistent for someone who claims to know Jesus to be okay with sin in their life. Paul said in Romans 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We're supposed to be done with sin. How can we, it can't be. We, we can't be that we're okay with it. We should be broken over it. Sin has a far greater negative effect than what we're inclined to believe. And the second claim we can make is that prayer has a far greater positive effect than what we're inclined to think. I mean, James, James is a good guy to listen to when he t- comes to prayer. Tradition t- tells us he had a nickname, and that nickname didn't have anything to do with the fact that, you know, he's the half-brother of Jesus. You might think that would be that way, or that he was the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. No, his nickname had to do with his prayer life. And, and we, we're told that he was called uh, Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer, kneeling. So this is a guy who might, just might know something about praying. See, when we're suffering, whether it's because of sickness or because of sin, or we're just struggling with life, the solution isn't for us simply to toughen up. It's not just about us getting more determined and more focused. That's all well and good. But the solution can't be about us. So what is the solution? 
Well, it has to be more about us coming to God, drawing near to him, becoming more dependent on him, coming into his presence, not in a hurry, not just rushing through our requests. It's about our lives being molded by coming into his presence. Let's take a look at what James says here. James chapter five, verse 12. He says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Above all, above all what? Well, just before this, he's talking about going through and, uh, trials and having patience with them and how to handle them. And then he's gonna mention trials again in verse 13. So above all, when you're going through tough times, he says, and this is a, applicable to any time, but I think especially, he says, don't swear. Now, this isn't about swearing in the sense that we might think of. It's not talking about a profane use of God's name. It's not talking about someone using his name as an exclamation like we hear so often. We know the Bible has clear restrictions on that, but that's not what we're talking about here. It's not a restriction uh, on, on that profane use. It's also not a restriction from taking a legal oath. We know that because Jesus himself answered questions under oath when he was on trial, Matthew 26. We know God himself gave an oath. We're told in Hebrews 6, 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So obviously not all oaths are wrong. He's not talking about profanity. He's not talking about a legal oath. So what is it? Well, what he's talking about is swearing an oath in normal conversation, where we try to confirm that what we're saying is truth with an oath. Like someone saying, I didn't do it, I swear. Or someone says, hey, to be honest with you. Oh, well, you weren't honest before? Some of you may remember uh, back in the early 80s, actually I think it's, they started in 79, but uh, it was all over the news back then about the Atlanta child murders. Um, I think there's 28 murders, most of them children. And uh, back in the early 80s, I was living near Atlanta. And so um, I heard a lot about it and they finally uh, arrested a guy, Wayne Williams, a he was convicted of two of the murders. Um, they've reopened the cases and are, are hoping to convict him of more of those. They're convinced he did these, but just don't have the, haven't had the evidence until now. So they arrested this guy. Anyway, the guy, the detective that was the head detective in interrogating Wayne Williams um, came one day to a class that I was taking. And he was talking about how to tell when someone's lying to you. He'd become an expert in this area. And, and by the way, this came in real handy when we were raising teenagers. It was, yeah. But he, 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 uh, he, uh, he's, he's going through all these different ways that you could tell and I'm, you know, it, was just, it was really interesting. And, uh, but he said one thing that was just sort of simple, but boy, it stuck with me. He said, 
If any suspect ever says to me, I promise, he said, I know that guy's lying to me. Just took an oath. And whether our oath, were, whether we're being deceptive or whether we're just trying to confirm our speech for some reason, Scripture's here telling us that as believers, our speech should be so clear and so true. It should be with such high integrity that an oath is completely unnecessary. Your yes is to be yes, your no, no. Keep your words clear. Be a person of your word. Be a person of integrity. Boy, talk about our culture. That's something we've lost in our culture today, right? I mean, now we, have, we nuance everything. I mean, you knew we were in trouble when President Clinton said, it depends on what the meaning of is is, you know? And, and that has impacted our, we were already in a bad situation as far as this is concerned, but it, we've only gotten worse. We are struggling with keeping our speech clear. We don't need to be found guilty of swearing an oath to prove our truthfulness or to get us out of a jam. Instead, James is gonna go on to tell us what we should do. And this is what people of faith do. He's already told us we're supposed to wait patiently, and now he tells us to wait prayerfully for God. He says it pretty directly, just like everything James says. Verse 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Anyone suffering? And yes, God's people, Christians suffer. Now there there are people today who teach a Christianity that has all the frills, but none of the pain. Reminds me of Jeremiah's time when Jeremiah was preaching. He was a guy who was sort of he, he, uh, direct, and in some ways, a lot of people t- today would think he was sort of negative. It was not fun listening to Jeremiah. People were probably thinking, boy, if he would just lighten up, he could get a bigger crowd. And there were these other prophets who, who were coming along, and they're saying, hey, don't worry. God's going to judge his people. Everything's good. You're the king's kids. Peace, peace. Life's good. And God spoke. He interrupted all this in Jeremiah 23. He said in verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. Hey, hey, it's okay, you're gonna be all right. But God says, don't listen to that message because even God's people sometimes suffer. And what we're told to do when that happens is to pray. And I'm sure we pray like God, Take this from me. God, get me out of this. And and there's nothing wrong with with that request. But our prayers should go way beyond that. If you're suffering, pray. Pray with the purpose of drawing near to God. It's what the familiar words of Hebrews 4.16 tell us, right? Therefore, let us draw near 
with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive grace, mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to him. Stay there. You know, those words sounded very familiar to the Jewish readers who were reading what the writer of Hebrews was saying. They understood to, to come into the presence of God. They thought of the temple and the, the veil and the, and the one day a year that the high priest could enter on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, he'd enter in there and he had his work to do. And he, and he went in there, he did that work and he got out. He didn't hang around in there. But we have a high priest who opened up the way for us, right? Allowed us, allows us to come with confidence, confidence to the throne. We get to come and spend, we don't have to just do our work and get out of there. We get to spend time with him and let him mold us, let him shape us, pour out what's on us. Let him minister to us. If you're suffering, pray. That should be our first and most vital response to difficulties. And if you're cheerful, if things are going good, sing praises. Some of us should probably make sure we're alone when we do this so that others don't suffer. But we should sing. We should sing, be, you know, be the crazy person singing alone in your car. Sing in the shower, sing at church, sing. And I want to challenge you, if you're a believer and God's been good to you and you, and you haven't been praising him, you need, you need to sing praises. That's what we're told to do. That's what James is telling us, sing. That's what Christians do. I've heard it said that Christianity is the only religion that sings. Some chant, but none sing like we do. We should sing because we've got something to sing about. Whether we're praying or praising, in either case, the focus should always be on God. James gets a little more specific in verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Anyone among you sick? You can pray yourself, but you can also get some help with that prayer. You can, you can ask the church to pray with you. That's, that's why we do the communication cards and you put those requests on there so that we can pray for you. James talks here about calling for the elders and, and them anointing with oil and praying. And, and, and what he's, he's talking about there, the anointing with oil is just a representative of, of God's spirit and the fact that you're setting this person aside for God. And he says that prayer That prayer offered in faith, a prayer that's marked by faith, trusting God will restore the one who's sick. That's good news, right? We know God answers prayer. We know he does it often, but it, that, that statement also raises a couple of questions because that sounds really definite. It's, it sounds really unlimited. 
The question is, does this verse guarantee healing? And if it does, does that mean if God doesn't heal, that it's because of insufficient faith on the prayer, the one who's praying's part? Does it guarantee healing? Sounds that way. But I don't think that's the, the meaning. I don't believe it guarantees healing in every case. You may remember that James is considered to be wisdom literature, a lot like Proverbs. And wisdom literature says things broadly that basically, usually are true. It's generally true. Think about a proverb that probably a lot of you know. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that sounds pretty broad, doesn't it? I mean, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he was old, he will not depart from it. Sounds like something pretty definite. Well, what's that saying? Is that saying no child will ever go wrong if you train them correctly? And if they go wrong, then you must not have trained them correctly? Is that what it's saying? No, it's saying generally speaking, Generally, if you train a child correctly, that's the way they'll go. So James's statement that the sick will be restored is a true statement that happens generally, that God often heals those who are prayed for in faith. There's no doubt that he does that. That's why we confidently go to him when we request for those who are sick. And that sort of answers the second question as well. If a person isn't healed, does that mean that the person praying didn't have enough faith? And the answer to that is no. God might have other purposes. Like Paul. Remember Paul with his thorn in the flesh? That many, most scholars I think would say was, it was a physical ailment. And what happened? Paul prayed. Paul prayed for that to be removed. He prayed three times for it to be removed. And Paul certainly had enough faith. And did God remove it? No. No. Why? Because as Paul learned through that process, God's power, as he said, God's power is made perfect in weakness. See, it built Paul up in his faith. And, and that purpose was higher than removing that thorn from his life. And not just for Paul. I mean, every Christian who's ever read those words has been encouraged by that. I mean, God's power is made perfect in weakness. If you've been a Christian for very long, those words have meant something to you. They've built you up and encouraged you. But James isn't done yet. He says, and if he has committed sins, if, because we know all sickness, not, not all sickness is directly connected to sin in our lives, but some of it is. So when we're sick, it's legitimate, it's a good time to take a look at our lives. Is it possible that God is using that sickness to allow us to see our sin and draw us to him? See, all because of prayer. Prayer can do so much. Prayer has a greater effect than what we might think. 
And James goes on. He says, confess your sins one to another. You know, this isn't talking about telling everybody everything you've ever done wrong. That, that, that could be, that cause a lot of damage. It's ta- talking about telling the right person. You know, he said, talks here about a righteous man, uh, someone who is, has the right character, someone who's walking closely with God. T- that person, tell that person for the right reason, for prayer. And that prayer, the right person praying for the right reason can accomplish much. Prayer can do more than we think. It can help us when we're sick and it can help us when we sin. And he gives an example, verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three, and a half, three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. Wow, great response to prayer. Here's Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You may be thinking, oh no, I, I know a little bit about Elijah. Elijah is a guy who's, you know, he was, he, he was a guy who stood against the 450 prophets of Baal. He was a guy who was regarded by Israel as the second greatest prophet behind Moses. I don't, I'm not like Elijah, but we are. Elijah was a man who was susceptible to getting down and getting discouraged. See, Elijah was a sinner like all of us, but he was a sinner motivated by faith. We're told in 1 Kings 17:1, he stood before the Lord. Stood before the Lord. He spent his time there. He drew near to God. And because of that, his prayer was effective. See, the reality is, Elijah didn't have a God that's stronger than ours. We serve the same God. And he didn't have more access to God than we do. In fact, we know we have complete access to him. But Elijah prayed. An ordinary man who prayed an audacious prayer. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years years. He prayed earnestly, we're told. Literally, it says in the Greek, with prayer, he prayed. It's stressing the intensity of his prayer. For three and a half years, in punishment for Ahab and Jezebel's idolatry. And then he prayed again. Right after, he, by the way, after he had defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he prayed again and it poured rain. I'd also point out that didn't happen immediately. He had to send his servant to look out to the sea seven times to look for rain. I remember standing on Carmel, and Carmel is really a series of hills, but I was standing on top, looking out towards the sea and thinking about this moment when this servant had gone seven times up that hill and the seventh time he's standing there and he looks out to the sea and he sees this small cloud. This small cloud that begins to to rain and then it grows and it begins to downpour because Elijah prayed. Sometimes our prayers The answer takes patience. But that happened because a good man, a man who wanted to honor God, prayed. What we keep seeing here from James 
is that prayer can have a far greater positive than what we think. Whether we're dealing with sin or suffering or other struggles. But James isn't done yet. He says in verse 19, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If anyone strays from the truth, begins wandering away, maybe you've seen that happen. It happens maybe unintentionally at first. A person begins to question truth. And then they get further and further from the truth until they deny truth. Or maybe it's not in the area of truth, it's in the area of the way they're living life. Maybe unintentionally they wander off the, they wander away in how they're living. They wander off the path and then they have a hard time finding their way back. James says, if anyone turns a sinner, that, and that's always the goal, not just to point out some wrong in their life, certainly not to sit back and just judge them. It's, the point is to get them to turn not to build ourselves up, it's always to turn the sinner. So how do we do that? Well, Paul put it this way in Galatians 6, 1, he just said that we are to, if any of you are, uh, I lost the verse. If, <laughs> he said, okay, they're out. He said, if someone strays from the truth, that we are to handle that with gentleness, right? carefully watching ourselves so that we don't get tempted also. That's always the goal, to turn that individual back to God, back to the truth. We don't just let it slide. We can't ignore it. You know, as great as prayer is, we don't just pray about it. We take a step to turn them. And if they turn, we save his soul from death. We know God actually does the saving, but we can be used in that process. Save the soul and cover a multitude of sins. Save them from spiritual death because sin is so destructive. Sin has a far greater negative effect than what we're inclined to believe. And unless it's broken in our lives, it will result in the death of the soul. But if they turn, it will cover a multitude of sins. Because prayer has a far greater positive effect than what we're inclined to think. And with that, the book of James comes to an end, sort of abruptly. There's no formal closing like you might expect normally. But that's the way James has been from the beginning, isn't it? And it's clear, he's clear cut. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Do what's right. Don't do what's wrong. It's his way of saying, make sure your faith is walking. As followers of Christ, take a look at yourself. Honestly. Take a look at your life. Is your faith moving in your life? Does your faith walk? 
And if you don't know Jesus, he's offered to you a free gift of eternal life. Or you can turn to him by faith, faith alone, asking him to forgive you of your sin. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, the payment being made, if you ask, God will apply that payment to your life. Forgive all of your sin and give you new life, give you eternal life where you will spend eternity with him, but also give you life right now where he'll walk through this life with you so that when you go through tough times or you struggle with some sin, he will be there for you and you can turn to him with confidence in prayer and know that he hears you and is serving you. It's an amazing relationship to have. And you can turn to him right now in the quietness of your own heart and ask him to come into your life and forgive you. If you do that and you have any questions about it, in just a minute after we close, you can come back to this room right here to my left room, what we call room one. Pastors will be there. We just will answer any questions you have, talk with you about your decision. Be glad to do that if you'd like. But believer, the question I want you to consider for yourself is, is your faith walking? Are you walking with him through life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, allowing us to know you. What a privilege it is to spend our lives serving you and living out our lives with you. God, I pray that we are faithful to what you've called us to do. And I pray for those who might be here who haven't ever taken that initial step, God, that they would take that step of faith today. Help us, Father, to see as your children how serious sin is, to step away and how privileged we are to be able to pray to you and to come into your presence. Help us be faithful, we pray. Bless the rest of our day now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.